0: This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM.
1: Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer. Today we'll be talking about the novel Don't Let My Baby Do Rodeo, first with the author, Boris Fishman, and then with my fellow readers, returning guests, Brad Ridke and Schiffer Sharlin. And stay tuned at the end of the show, our New Haven librarians are back with a middle grade recommendation. Don't let my baby do rodeo, takes the quintessential American road trip trope and turns it on its head. Maya and Alex, with their adopted eight-year-old Max, set forth from New Jersey to Montana on a quest to find Max's biological parents. Maya, whose love for Max is encumbered by a fear that she will never understand him, is hoping that what they find at the end of their journey will give her an answer key, Alex is along on the journey unwillingly, because Maya wants to go, and Max doesn't know why they're in the car, or what might be at the end of the road. I had the opportunity to speak with author Boris Fishman last week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Boris Fishman was born in Belarus and immigrated to the United States at the age of nine. He received a degree in Russian literature from Princeton University and his MFA in fiction from New York University. His first novel, A Replacement Life, was one of the New York Times' 100 Notable Books of 2014. Don't Let My Baby Do Rodeo is his second novel. Boris, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM.
2: Hi, Sid. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Boris, this book is the third in a series of what I'm calling road trip novels that I've done on the show, kind of unintentionally. Okay. We talked about Bob Prohl's novel, A Hundred Thousand Worlds, a couple of months ago. And on our most recent episode, we talked about Jade Chang's novel, The Wangs Versus the World. So uh-huh. I'm going to start by asking you some of the same questions I asked Jade. Was this always a road trip novel in your mind? And what was interesting to you about the idea of the road trip?
2: Um, so the road trip is about as American a pastime and ritual as they come but it morphs a bit when you've got immigrants doing it for a couple of reasons one of them is the immigrants i know which are russians who settle in and around new york um they never go anywhere um so many of them have never been west of new jersey and so uh, the idea of sending them into this country i mean i mean to my mind it's kind of, kind of I mean, it's mind-boggling. You have been you've been taken in and adopted under strained circumstances as political refugees by this country that could be more different than the country you were born in. Um, and your response has been to hunker down in a place that looks as much as possible like the place that you left. Um, to me. Um, That was something that I wanted to explore. The other uh, reason was that I myself uh, was as guilty of the same as the adults that I'm putting down for a very long time. After nine, the only place I went was east, back to Europe. Um, And then one bright year, I finally looked west and uh, drove cross country. Uh, This was in 2008. And, you know, this entire episode wouldn't be enough for me to tell you What I discovered and the ways in which it knocked me off my feet, uh, for better and worse, but mainly for better. And so I uh, wanted to replicate uh, that experience of discovery, except that I wanted uh, immigrants to go through it because um, all the things that, all the myths of the West, of the road, of et cetera, that have been somewhat discredited by this point in the American mind, because we're post all that stuff, they're still alive for immigrants. Um, Some of those dreams and fantasies are still very valid for them. And so I wanted to explore all these things, all these themes um, in the book.
1: You mentioned uh, that you have these immigrants who are adopted as political refugees. And I thought that was an interesting formulation because, of course, this book is a lot about adoption in both in very literal ways that Max is adopted um, by Maya and Alex. And then, of course, you know, that Maya and Alex uh, have adopted America as their country um, and Maya, in some sense, has been adopted by her in-laws. Were you thinking about that consciously when you when you kind of gave Maya and Alex this adopted son, the way that adoption plays out in these different ways across the book?
2: I mean, it's a great question because some of these things you're aware of consciously before you begin, they're why you're writing the book. And then many of them reveal themselves to you as you're working. Like, for example, um, the reason I, I wrote, the, the reason for the plot, Sort of writ narrowly couldn't be simpler. I think I heard a a story once about a couple from New Jersey that had adopted a boy who was very different ethnically from another part of the country and they were having trouble. It was nothing more complicated than that. Um, But then you begin infusing the idea with your own obsessions and predicaments and whatever is going on in your subconscious. And one of the things I realized uh, midway through the book is part of what attracted me to that you'll agree, fairly basic-sounding premise, um, is this idea that, right, Max has adopted, I'm not. Except immigration does um, to the immigrant child who ostensibly benefits so much from the sacrifice performed for him or her by his or her parents is this bitter irony. It turns you into a foreigner um, uh, when you interact with them because they continue to live the old way and you Americanize. And so... um, you might as well be adopted. That's how foreign feeling these elders become to you if you really get to the bottom of it. So I think that's part of why Max's experience resonated for me. And so, but the idea of belonging versus adoption, what what it feels like to be at home versus what it feels like to be an outsider. I mean, I'll be writing about this in various guises for the rest of my life because it, it, it was the defining experience of my life because I immigrated at nine rather than zero. Uh, or 40, for that matter. The people who immigrated 40, they're set. Even in America, they're Russians. But if, when you immigrate at a vulnerable age like that, um, you really remain divided for the rest of your life. And so, I'm obsessed with belonging. I'm obsessed with community. Um, I'm like one of those. Um, I'm like one of those people who wants to belong everywhere, but refuses to belong anywhere. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm impossible. Uh, Right, because you feel like you don't belong,
1: you don't belong anywhere. Like things are not are are too familiar or not familiar enough, but none feels like home.
2: Exactly, you know. I don't want to join any group whose whose rules and conditions I did not have a hand in making. But I think that's a demand I have only as an outsider. You know, there's a line in my first novel, A Replacement Life, where uh, a character is asked by an American whether he felt uh, at home in the former Soviet Union, and he says. Does a trout notice water? You don't even know that, there's, that it's possible to uh, not belong, to feel not at home somewhere. Now, in the Soviet Union, if you were Jewish, um, you were an outsider as my parents very much were and experienced uh, every day. But they shielded me so comprehensively from it that I actually got to enjoy this incredible privilege of feeling at home somewhere, which I've never actually felt since the age of nine as much as I respect and admire America for what it is, and as grateful as I am for having been taken in here, you know mm-hmm. so um you know it's it's very it's very productive for art. it is no fun for your personal life and that particular strandedness,
1: yeah, I want to go back to something you said about that initial story you heard about this couple from New Jersey who had this adopted child and and how I guess my question is you know what do you know what it was about that story that stayed with you? I mean, later on, as you started to work with it. The ways in which maybe that child's experience resonated with yours came through. But why do you think that stuck with you initially?
2: i think I think two things. one of uh, three things actually. one of them was just simply the collision of cultures. And you know their particular um, <clears throat> frustrated um, encounter with this young man for me, I think was was just tripped the wire uh, of. What happened with us when we immigrated? That 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 terribly confusing colli- collision of cultures uh, that turned my life on its head. Not only because I came to a very foreign place, but because I became the parent. Because I learned English first. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it also resonated with me because <clears throat> I'm interested in situations where ordinary people who do not expect or plan to be extraordinary in any way. There is no. Unusual ambition in them of any kind, they confront extraordinary circumstances um, through no choice of their own. By which I simply mean, you know, there are couples um, having babies without a problem all the time. Um, and I think most parents to be expect to join their ranks, um, except for whatever reason, some parents. And I'm not speaking from personal experience here. i'm I'm not a parent, um, and I'm not even married. but <clears throat> they 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 discover that they're unable to do this thing that a million other people do without effort every day. And they undergo a set of experiences first when they try to become pregnant through the various <clears throat> methods that are possible to assist biology. And then, um, if that doesn't work, then they sort of take another enormous leap, which is to consider the possibility of uh, bringing a foreign person into their own home. Um, it's a ubiquitous concept, but I don't know how many of us have really like, stopped and, 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 and let that sink in, what it means to bring a six-year-old, a 15-year-old, a seven-week-old into your home that you did not bring into the world. Um, and, and in the same way that in the first novel, uh, for me, I think World War II was that extraordinary circumstance that asked of some ordinary people questions they never planned to have asked of them. Um, I think that's why that little story resonated for me here, because this was just an ordinary couple that wanted to have an ordinary kid and go ahead and have an ordinary life. And instead, they ended up um, on this psychosocial adventure that forced them to, to to meet themselves in a new way. I love stories where people are asked to um <clears throat> get to know themselves in way that, in ways they would have otherwise preferred not to um those kinds of questions always interest me um and if I haven't gone on for too long very there's a quick- third thing right yeah, yeah there's a the third thing is simply I was I think for whatever reason I glommed on to the female half of that experience oh um, that's so
1: funny because I'm just about to ask you a question about that so go ahead
2: um i think because i come out of a community which in this sense is is only only a generation or so behind um where i think women find themselves in america and i'm talking about sort of women who, who live in a culture and i'm referring to soviet culture here and the way that soviet culture does migrate to the states because of how insular these immigrant communities are Um, A culture that sort of really expects them once they get married, um, and this happens uh, at a much younger age in Russian culture, to begin to surrender those parts of themselves that are mainly their own in order to become uh, a kind of satellite of, of the other centers of attention in their lives, which are usually male. Um, they become somebody's daughter-in-law and somebody's uh, wife um, and somebody's mother before they they're sort of sanctioned by the culture to think about what that what they themselves would want for themselves alone. There is sort of a woman ceases to have a private identity when she becomes married in Russian culture. And I think uh, America is only a generation ahead of that. Um, and I think the book became, for me, a kind of fantasy. Of, of a Russian kind of Stella getting her groove back. Someone who did that without ever wanting to. Someone who, when she was young, was as independent um, and wild in her own way as her adopted boy is. Um, and who then, through this sort of mysterious malady of his that occurs 20 years later, um, reckons with, the, with, with, with her giveaways, um, uh, as dictated by this culture, and begins to ask questions of herself that everyone in the family prefers uh, would, stay, would stay put, and uh, sort of transforms into a type of independent woman that I've largely encountered only uh, in America. And so it's very much a fantasy of a, of a Soviet woman, uh, perhaps not unlike the women of the generation before mine that I've known, including my mother, including her friends, um, sort of getting their groove back in that way.
1: So I want to talk a little bit more about about that and about writing that character, because you've talked a little bit about the ways that you could identify with Max, the son, as kind of the outsider coming into this culture where he doesn't quite belong. And I think in, in certain obvious ways, it's easy to equate you with Alex, who's the husband and kind of of a certain age and shares certain autobiographical details with you um, in terms yeah. of when he came to America and so on and so forth. Um, But Maya is the one who is least obviously like you. So how do you inhabit a character like that?
2: You're absolutely right. Um, I, on purpose, gave Alex all my biographical details. He comes here um, at the same age as I do, from the same place as I did, under the same sort of uh, diplomatic conditions as I did, Um, lives in the same places as I lived. Um and to some people, though not necessarily to everyone, Alex is 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 by far the less attractive character of the two. And it was very intentional um, in my doing that because it sort of f- freed me. Um I got myself out of the way so that I could focus on creating the female character where actually most of the non-superficial details about me reside. They reside in Maya, not in Alex. And in terms of, of, of how I inhabit I've always had a very feminine psychology. I think I think it has to do with growing up in the family in which I grew up. Not not so much because the women ruled the roost or anything, though that does happen a lot in many Soviet families where the men are kind of titular figureheads but the show is really run by the women. I just I think about this all the time and I think about it more and more as I get older. The incredible fortune I had in being brought up by incredibly tender people, because the country in which we grew up was not tender at all. And if you were tender, it made you incredibly coarse. It made lots of tender people very coarse. And somehow these people who outside the home had to contend with all sorts of um, incredibly cynical things that made them cynical in lots of ways um, outside family life. They somehow managed to remain incredibly warm and loving so that I was brought up in an environment that encouraged me to be expressive and sensitive and emotional and feeling. Um, and I don't understand why those, are rega- why those qualities are regarded as classically feminine qualities. I think that's a failure of our culture to see them as classically feminine um, I think lots of men possess the same qualities. They're sort of culturally forbidden from expressing them, but that's a separate conversation. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just access them. You know, the, the other part of it, just practically, is that I grew up in a kind of in a Soviet Jewish family that, as I've just described, worshipped the child, had a c- kind of cult of love centering around the child. That was, you know, very loving, but also self-serving in a lot of ways. Um, but it's not like these adults stopped needing things just because they left the last piece of fruit always for the boy. Um, it's just, you know, actually even worse. It's, it's that they cease to communicate their needs directly. And the boy had to learn how to read between the lines of what was wanted from him from a very young age. Um, it's a skill that happens to be very useful for a writer. Um, and, um, I think that I was observing the women in my life and the men, by the way, very closely from a very young age. Uh, and that kind of heightened sensitivity, um, is just, it's, it's indispensable to a writer. I mean, what is one of the chief qualities that a fiction writer needs acute consciousness? And I stress the word acute because it's not fun. You can't turn it off. Mm -hmm. It's why people drink, Mm -hmm. uh, to dull the sensitivity. But in the best case scenario, it is, it is it allows you to pick up things that apparently go unpicked up by people who are not writing a novel. You know,
1: it's funny, though, because you say you give a lot of those qualities to Maya. But there is a line where Maya is noticing or comments on Alex and how he notices things that other people don't. And it's, I think it's that kind of noticing that you're talking about here.
2: Yeah, and that actually, um, <clears throat> that comes from my own personal life where, my, where I resemble my mother in this regard, right? And my father um, is a lot more reserved. And this reserve enables him to n- sort of in the coolness of his remove, uh, notice things and see sometimes in a more far-seeing way than my mother or I do, because we're, we're um, very emotionally responding to what is happening in front of us right away. It is inconceivable to us to leave what's happening right now unaddressed, whereas he possesses the skill of looking further. Um, and it's different kinds of noticing. Right, a kind of
1: analytical very, noticing versus an emotional responding.
2: Right, exactly so. And, and I think it was very astute of you to notice that distinction because uh, that's one of the blinders uh, someone like me can have. That this kind of noticing is the only one, and it isn't. And it's why, it's why I I have moments when I am proud of Maya, and I have moments when I'm proud of Alex. And when people ask me whom I side with more, my answer changes all the time.
1: And did you find it hard to write the character of a mother not being a parent yourself? Or again, is, is the answer kind of the same? That that same emotional responsiveness that you possess enabled you to tap into that
2: well I mean the great thing about fiction um, and the funny thing about fiction uh, which people don't often think about is that it is often where you explore alternate lives that you're not able to live yourself or Mm -hmm. have not uh, arrived at yet Um, in the first novel I had a character who um, followed no rules and it was great fun to write him because Mm -hmm. what what a vicarious thrill that was Um, And here, um, you know, I'm 37. I'm not uh, married or a parent, but I am in a serious relationship. And sort of that's very much um, uh, in the works. And but even before this relationship, I, you know, once I entered my early to mid 30s, I began to want a child very much and uh, multiple children, in fact, and maybe four. Maybe four. I mean,
1: that's. I recommend that's, four.
2: You recommend four as the sweet spot. Um, <clears throat> first, I have to move out of New York City, and then the number can go up. I feel like New
1: Haven's a lovely place.
2: I feel like New York is a little bit like China, except voluntarily. You know, China <laughs> has the one child rule by decree, and New York must have the one child rule just because of how expensive it is. Um, New Haven is supposedly lovely. I just read an article yesterday saying that it's one of the most undervalued housing markets in the country. There you go. Um, but I have thought so much about what it might be like to have a kid and what if the kid does this and what if the kid does that? Like, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? You know, um, and it's, it's really kind of animated me and obsessed me for some time. And I just poured all of that into Maya's character and Maya, um, you know, is, is, is as unskilled with it, um, as as I am partly because of how foreign this creature is you know i think a lot of parents learn on the go maya is hampered in doing so by how incredibly different and unpredictable this this boy is, at least to someone of her mentality. So- yeah, well, I
1: wanted to ask you about that because I've seen the book described, and I don't know if you've written this description or it's been written by others by about a couple who've adopted a boy who turns out to be wild. And maybe it's just because I have an eight year old who seems a lot more wild than Max. But Max just didn't seem that wild to me, like chewing on grass and like sitting in the river to look at pebbles. Like, didn't seem that crazy. To me. And I wondered if that description was your take on Max or Maya's take on Max.
2: That's very much their take on Max. Max is a perfectly normal kid, uh, were he the child of American parents, to these overprotective, insular, isolated um, immigrants who might as well still be living um, in a different country. Uh, and it's, it's not as if uh, people didn't live in the countryside in the Soviet Union, it's just that there's a certain kind of person who disdain rural life as the province of people with lesser means and venerated urban life. And that's been transported to America by these people. And so this boy in their midst, who is a perfectly normal American child, um, is uh, wild to them. Um, And it's something that I sort of handled uh, somewhat subtly in the novel, perhaps too subtly. But I sort of enjoy leaving the reader to make some of those connections, him or herself. But that's absolutely true.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that that is, uh, that is the connection that we draw. It was interesting to me to see it described that way, because as I said, it kind of made me wonder if that was your perception of it. Um, you know, when I, as, when I read the book, I felt like it was much more their perception of it. And it said a lot more about who they were and their own, um, their own sense of Max as this foreign creature that had been brought into their midst versus yeah, I... their, own, their own biological offspring.
2: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And, and to, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I wrote that. I wrote that stuff. And
1: I mean, you have um, to find one sentence, right? When people are like, "What's the book about?" You have to find the <laughs> sentence.
2: So right, that's the sentence, absolutely. But I, but I think I began the novel intending him to be objectively wild, mm-hmm. and what I realized in the course of writing, because sometimes you know it writes itself, um, it, it makes its own demands. Rather, yeah, is that he wasn't that wild at all. He was only so in their eyes. As in so many ways, what Max is, is a projection of their own obsessions, fears, questions, needs, etc. I mean, to be perfectly honest, Max is a less developed
1: character. I was just going to say that, like, I think he works so much as a projection of all of those things, because he's kind of a cipher. We get very little of him, you know, very little of him speaking or interacting. He's kind of a blank. And I think that's important.
2: Right, it was a risky move that again was not necessarily fully intentional, but sort of emerged um, of its own accord, of, of its own will, rather. Sorry, um, but that's that's exactly it. Like, Ma- like again, sometimes characters make their own demands, and Mag's demanded to be a cipher. No matter how much I tried to get to know him, this was as well as I could understand him, and that's partly because he lives a lie with these people. He doesn't know that he's adopted, even though it's ridiculous. He's blonde and blue-eyed. How long do they think they can keep this lie going? He's eight years old. It's a wonder he hasn't asked the questions already. Um, And because despite, you know, the irony is that despite being so quote unquote wild, he's actually a very obedient good boy.
1: That's exactly how I felt. Right? Yeah.
2: Um, So um, for me, Max comes alive as a three dimensional creature only at the end of the novel when he hears a certain truth that has been withheld from him for the duration of the book it's only when the parents begin to tell the truth to him um in a meaningful way that their relationship is finally ready to evolve and take off and begin to make sense in a way that it never has in the past eight years and i guess it's just my my proposal that that in 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 families like mine so many truths and facts are withheld in the name of some misguided ideal um, like seemliness or de- decorousness, or just a whole host of others. And if I could summarize my American experience in one concept, it's, it's, this is actually a, a line from the first novel, it is better to know than not to know.
1: And interesting, though, because there's one point in this novel where it says you have to sometimes make peace with the things that you won't know.
2: That's a very good point as well. Maya does that when she sort of uh, reaches what she thinks is a limit in her attempts to get more information about who Max is. Um, that's absolutely true. The sense that I'm referring to is um, there's this very American idea that you know it's actually a, a cliche: sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? But it's it's a cliche only because it's in such frequent play in the culture that particular locution. Uh, I can assure you that um, that particular phrase never existed in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Um, The Soviet solution is to withhold, to conceal, to occlude. The Potemkin village is the Soviet solution to unpleasant facts. And I think one of the things that is that has grafted very well for me in American culture is just this idea that um, the direct, truthful way is always the best. Then again. if, if it was true for this family, I wouldn't have had a novel, so.
1: <laughs> there you go. Well, I wish we had more time to talk. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Sid. Those are terrific questions. I appreciate it very much.
1: I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Brad Ridkey and Schiffer Charlin. Brad is a high school English teacher here in New Haven. He last appeared on Book Talk talking about Rebecca Dinerstein's novel, The Sunlit Night. Shifra Charlin teaches writing at Yale. And she last appeared on Book Talk discussing Janine capo Cruset's novel, Make Your Home Among Strangers. Brad and Shifra, it's great to have you both back on the show. Good morning, Sid. It's fun to be here. Good morning, Sid. It's great to be back. So, Brad, in some correspondence we had prior to sitting down here in the studio, you mentioned a passage on page 203, "'that it caught your attention. "'Alex, Maya, and Max are en route to Montana, "'and they stop at a diner so Max can use the bathroom. "'Alex has stayed in the car, "'and Maya and Max are standing by the door "'waiting to be seated, "'and a man at the counter speaks to them, "'and this is where the passage begins. "'Sit down if you're looking to order,' he said to Maya. "'They don't know what to do with you if you're standing.' "'Maya colored, feeling the interloper's familiar cluelessness. "'It, not Alex, was her true life's companion.' Just when she began to get free of some of the feelings, she mispronounced a word or failed to apprehend some invisible rule and lived the next days like a guest, a cherry pit of self-reproach in her stomach. How was one to know these things? The hostess podium said, please wait to be seated. So, Brad, I thought maybe we could start with you talking about what you found interesting about this moment. Yeah, thanks,
3: Sid. I was just struck by, um, I I guess, the, the repetition of that moment that we see in various ways. And this one's a relatively small way. But but Boris Fishman calls it out here in Maya's consciousness, right? It's just, do I sit or not sit so that I can get served? Um, but her, this idea of her as an interloper seems to crop up again and again. And, and I was really struck by how much expertise she sees in everyone else um, and how much she struggles to sort of have that comfort in her own interactions with, with people in place.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, as I mentioned, I've been doing a lot of road trip novels on the show and thinking a lot about what's interesting about them. And here, one thing that I thought was really interesting was that when you're on a road trip, you are repeatedly putting yourself in the position of the outsider. So every new stop, you have to experience life as an interloper. Again, you never get um, to be at a place of comfort or a place of home. And Maya, by being the one who has wanted to go on this road trip, has very consciously chosen to, uh, to, to give herself that experience, which you can either see as kind of a chance to, um, to get it right over and over again, you know, uh, like every, every new stop, a new opportunity to try to learn from the past and fit in this time, or almost like self-punishment, that over and over again, you feel like an outsider, you kind of reinforce it in yourself. I am so outside, I am so different.
4: Or there's also, um, what I wondered, is the road trip is such the great American trope that she, she embraces, in part, I think you put what a road trip does to you, that you're always an interloper, but that's also kind of the, great American thing. You're always, there are so many different kinds of us, so someone's always on the outside. And she she kind of embraces that strangeness, or like maybe that's what America actually is because of that. There's an opening, a passage early in the novel, which when I first read it just seemed mysterious, where Alex is, in contrast, her husband, who came to the United States when he was only 10. He was the one who had taken to America. He spoke with confidence about Wall Street, the structure of Congress, and technology. And Maya conceded his authority. And then what really surprised me the first time I read it was that she threw him off his game entirely, and he wouldn't speak to her for three days because she observed that in 20 years, he had almost never left New Jersey. So what did he know? So the idea that if you really want to be an American, you have to go out there and encounter otherness and being an interloper.
3: But Maya is so, of course, not only willing, but feels the need to do that, almost yeah. desperately so. Um, and I love the tension, you know, where she's, she, she does that. Um, and she will get in the car and start driving when she probably hasn't had enough lessons and it doesn't always go well. Um, and Alex of course is very uh, determined to sort of maintain control over things. And I have to imagine that's why you don't leave New Jersey's because you know it and it took a while to figure it out. And this is your, your comfort zone and you're safe there. Um, but Maya feels that real, maybe very American need to experience the otherness.
1: Well, I think that that difference between them, this, you know, desire for control and caution versus the desire to know at the expense of safety um, is a really uh, important distinction between them. And maybe also gets to this idea of the rodeo, which we haven't really talked about. But, there, um, you know, the rodeo is, is described as both dangerous but exhilarating, um, and it has all this potential. You know, that's where you can get glory. That's where you can earn money. Um, But it's also where you can be, you know, damaged beyond redemption. Um, And in some ways, Laurel, uh, who is Max's biological mom, when she comes to bring the baby uh, to Maya and Alex, says to Maya, don't let my baby do rodeo, almost kind of embracing the position of Alex, you know, keep my baby safe, keep him here in New Jersey, keep him where. Nothing bad can happen to him. Um, and we don't get a lot of, of Max's biological father, but of course he is the one who, you know, seeks the glory and the fame. And I think we can in some ways maybe equate him with Maya, which is this sense of like, maybe there are things worth sacrificing safety for. Well,
3: I think, and maybe Schiffer, this goes back to the passage you quoted earlier where, you know, Laurel, Max's biological mother speaks from experience there. I mean. It, maybe not firsthand, but very close to firsthand, right? Having seen the, the damage that rodeo can, can do to her husband, Max's father. Um, but Alex speaks not so much from experience, right? He's willing and spends, seems according at least to Maya speaks from inexperience. Um, and uh, so. But,
1: but I, I think, I think that underestimates his experience as an immigrant which is he has had this experience that could be seen as exciting and thrilling, right? Which is the venturing into the unknown, leaving behind your home and going to a whole new place and culture, which is what um, what people who kind of choose to undertake road trips are seeking, right? They're seeking the adventure of the road. Um, but he had that experience and while there may have been good things about it and it may be better than where they came from, it's also overwhelming and scary. And I think his conclusion from it was what he wanted more than anything was a sense of, of home. Um, and so he makes that choice. So I don't think it's a completely uninformed choice, nor a choice that's made entirely out of feeder, though I think that that fear is definitely guiding it.
4: Yeah. He stays on a very small patch of land. And right. I, I love that. Um... Maya, in her desire to go on a road trip, it's not w- in in preparation for this road trip she doesn't she makes a list and like, okay, what's on this list? Is it all the wonderful things that she expects to happen to her? Oh, it's going to be an adventure. she's going to meet new people. No, it's a list of dangers, snowstorms head beginning with snowstorms, including snakes, also getting robbed, being hurt, poison and But yet she wants to go on this trip.
1: But I think that that making that list is a very human thing to do because it is that sense of all the dangers you've thought of are not the ones that will happen to you. I mean, I know this is crazy, but like at night before I go to sleep, the last thing I do is I try to think of all the terrible things that can happen to my children. And I know that's crazy. Right. But but I kind of feel like if I have thought of them all, none of them will happen. And it's completely superstitious. I don't really subscribe to it, but I subscribe to it enough that I do it. And that is what she is doing here. And, you know, there is a one of the questions that I didn't get to ask Boris, we didn't have time for was I wanted to ask him whether he felt like there was such a thing as an immigrant novel, and whether he felt like this was an immigrant novel. Um, and obviously, in certain ways, it is. But I also felt like in certain ways, it was a novel of kind of the human experience. And yeah. the ways that our fears can define us and guide us and the ways that we can also seek to conquer them because of the ways that they limit us.
3: That's what seemed um, particularly striking about that list later, of course, is that she does encounter several of those fears <laughs> in some way or another, right? They, they do for a moment believe that there really is a rattlesnake in the tent. Um, and they, of course, they do kind of get caught in a snowstorm. Um, it turns out that there's there wasn't really a rattlesnake in the tent. So we have that tension between, you know, the actualized fear and the, the seemingly actualized fear. Um, and then the snowstorm, of course, turns out not to be quite um, the, the danger maybe that um, it, it could have been or was made out to be or certainly that they felt it was.
4: Yeah, and after all, it's the snowstorm is the foundation of or the condition for the kind of magical. Almost redemptive happy moment at the end. And you can look at it and say, "Okay, I'm going to be alright in this. I can face this."
1: But I think that the um, the fears very much intersect with this sense of insider and outsiderness. So you know, you have the uh, when there's the fear of the the rattlesnake, they are kind of on the outside of the tent, and they are not the ones who go in to. Um, to, to, to search and destroy such as it were, um, you know, they are, they are on the, again, you know, kind of the outsiders, uh, waiting for the insider to, to take care of it. Or even, um, with the snowstorm, um, they are looking, they are separated from the sphere through, through glass, through the window of the car. Um, not quite inside, inside it. Um, and and there's a way in which that sense of themselves as outsiders is repeated and repeated.
3: Yeah, I think that's the idea of the interloper and trying to you know find out what wh- where where is the inside, where is the outside, and which side of that barrier am I on, and which side is safer, and where do I really want to be? Um, I think maybe go to to go back a little bit. This you know the idea of the immigrant novel being also I mean. It is, of course, really accessible to the non-immigrant experience, too, because I think it reflects so much of, of just the human experience of that same kind of struggle, because we all have things that we are on the outside of that we feel like maybe we want to or should be on the inside of and vice versa.
4: Well, and also he puts the immigrant novel together with the adoption novel, mm. so I think that. That really gives an interesting twist and richness to the story because um, in the end, when uh, Maya finally tells uh, Max that he's adopted, she tells him, you have four parents. And in a certain sense, that's her position as well. You know, he he has four parents, and she has the Soviet Union and the United States. She has her parents in the Soviet Union, or her mother and the in-laws she lives with. And it's all kind of confusing and upsetting, but she presents it to Alex as this, uh, to Max, I'm sorry, as this wonderful, wonderful thing. So I thought that was just a very cool spin on how to see immigrants, that it's also like adoption.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I really like that way of, of looking at that moment of, um, of revelation to Max. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it in that way of, uh, you know, kind of giving him a gift, like we're so lucky um, that we have all of these things. And it's also a way in which, a moment in which she kind of equates herself and Max. Up until now, she kind of repeatedly focuses on the way he seems different from her. Uh, She's even more focused on the ways that he's more like her in-laws and her in-laws family. Um, Then, you know, she sees those similarities. She's capable of seeing those, but she's not capable of seeing a connection to herself. And this is a moment where she finds connection with him. But there is another kind of darker way to look at this. And Brad and I were talking about this a little earlier before we started taping, which is, um, it's interesting that Max is is about the same age that Boris Fishman was when he came to this country. And that was the moment in which he is plunged into this other culture. And it's this moment of division in his life where he will never again feel truly at home in the world, where he becomes aware of himself as other. So as Boris said, you know, you're a fish in the water. You don't even know you're in the water until you're taken out of it. And I think that Max could kind of be up until this moment he is the fish in the water and only when he is then told well actually you're adopted will he never again really feel like that fish in the water who doesn't even know that he's there um and so I you know she has I think that 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 in some ways you know revelation and truth and knowing are presented as good things, but there's also a deprivation that happens there. She takes something away from him when she tells him that she takes away this true sense of home that he'll never be able to reclaim.
3: Yeah. I wonder, you know, to what extent, so in the novel, Maya comes 10 years later, right? She arrives in the U S as an 18 year old. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas her husband arrived when he was eight. So maybe that's the difference between her willingness and an ability maybe to kind of um, embrace the messiness of having multiple parents and multiple homes and multiple continents um, and alex's desire to really contain and maybe even constrain all of that to confine it to to one patch of land and one set of parents
4: yeah I mean there's that wonderful scene also when they're they're trying to write their narratives for um for the adoptive parents to see and on the one hand Maya writes one oh having children is an expedition and it's the way she puts it it's kind of a scary expedition whereas for uh Alex it's about we're at the end of our journey now right and we're putting down roots right and we're settled and
3: it's curious, right, that he gets that right. That 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 is you know, sort of the right answer that Maya seems to recognize because it's what it is accepted and gets a lot of nods and, and approval. And yet, I find myself aligning much more with Maya's sense. And I mean, the Me reality too. is that right, it's it's not so <laughs> it's not so easy. You don't know what's coming up, and you don't get to just sort of plug in the generations that came before you.
1: Yeah, although you know, it, it seems like at least the people who respond to Alex's essay, you know, um, Laurel and Tim, um, again, Laurel is, that's what she's seeking is, is she is seeking rootedness because it's what she feels like she lacks. Um, Whereas others might, might be seeking something more uh, exciting or adventurous. Um, But the, the child they get is the child of people who, uh, who want to give them what they don't have.
4: Right. And don't you think it's interesting that Laurel and Tim coming from Montana have this fantasy of New Jersey and say to them, well, you're Jewish, right? And so you're going to raise them to be Jews. And they're like, well, um, sort of. And then Maya has the twin fantasy. We'll go to Montana and find out, you know, this place where he's from, whereas in fact, Laurel and Tim had vanished years ago you know, and and seemingly something kind of capricious. You know, they came into money. That is the money that they got from uh, putting, it seems, from the child. And um, they bought a car, and they've gone off on their road trip, so there.
1: Yeah, I thought the role that Place played in this novel was really interesting, what Place comes to represent, that New Jersey very much represents this sense of safety, of non-adventurousness, <laughs> um, but also a, a kind of isolation, right? I, you know, Maya doesn't seem to talk to anyone. She doesn't really seem to have friends. Um, the community seems very circumscribed to herself and her in-laws and their little world. A- Alex even works for his father. Um, it's a very, very narrow, very small world. And then you have Montana, which represents everything else, right? It represents the America in the way that we think of America from generations past, right? The wide West with the big sky and kind of the prairie, um, you know, the, the quintessential road trip novel, Little House on the Prairie, which I'm reading with my my daughter right now. And, you know, it's kind of, I feel like the first road trip novel, they get in their covered wagon and they go out to the prairie where it is the, the complete unknown um, and the complete opposite of everything that New Jersey represents.
3: Yeah, I'd be curious, you know, I was wondering at some points reading the novel about my own sense of otherness uh, as a reader, right? I don't know what it's like to read this as a native Montanan, right? Is, is your sense of other, I presume, would be New Jersey.
4: Right? Yes. Yeah, speaking as someone who was born in New Jersey and then raised in small town Iowa, I could relate a little. And... Um, what, what knocked me out, actually, I loved what Sid just said that, um, New Jersey seems small and safe and well, actually Montana is exactly like New Jersey to the people who live there. It's the, it's the excitement of being the interloper, you know, being an interloper and, you know, I've also lived abroad for long periods of time and being a foreigner and being an interloper just kind of wakes you up and
3: because you have way. license in a way that you don't No,
4: because everything is strange and mm. you're you know just like that you know am i supposed to be seated now i mean even when i'm in an english-speaking country when i'm in a foreign country it always takes me a little while to start speaking because i i'm like so unsure and that being off balance is just it's kind of you know, it's maybe a little upsetting, but it's also exciting. And and after all, you know, not at all in the position of someone like Maya and Alex, who who don't have a stable spot. Really, they're completely destabilized. They can't go back to the Soviet Union and be okay.
3: Right, and yet, you know, that, that for me, of course, that was the most striking difference between Maya and Alex is is her willingness to yeah. She seeks it out. I mean, almost yeah. it struck me almost in a kind of addictive way that yeah. you know, to to some extent that's the relationship with Marion, um, the sort of extramarital fling that she has in Montana is this guy who um, comes all, out of almost nowhere and then kind of recedes back into nowhere relatively quickly. But um, she gets a lot from it, and, and that experience for her is wildly different from what goes on in New Jersey.
1: Can we talk a little bit more about Marion? So Marion, again, is this man that she meets on the road trip she meets him in the diner ultimately has this kind of one night stand with him um what did you make of that relationship
3: well i thought you know for me he's very much the other he's almost a a a mythical marlboro man
0: Mm -hmm.
3: um he does smoke a lot right (laughs) (laughs) um and then Maya takes it up again when she's with him. I don't think she smoked in New Jersey, right? Or, or not, maybe I she missed not She has part. that
1: cigarette with, Laure- with, with Laurel.
3: Right. Okay, so she smokes with Montanans, but not, <laughs> <laughs> not, with, not with a native um, or non-native Russian immigrants to New Jersey. Um, but it, he becomes yet one of the strangers to which she can kind of liberate her ideas and her thoughts in a way that she... Um, is so constrained from doing at home.
4: I mean, for her, it is a kind of freedom. But she'd already been portrayed when he, when Alex first meets her, she's the more sexually experienced and adventurous. And in choosing Alex, she is choosing, you know, something more settled, more less adventurous. It's right. presented that way, even at the
3: start. Yeah, and there are multiple moments at which Alex is you know, doing something that maybe is not so—savory um, is not quite the right word, but not so kind always. And yet, mm-hmm. Maya generally finds some approval for it, right? Yeah. Um, like maybe Sid, you mentioned earlier, his, whether his um, unhelpfulness in, in helping her learn to drive is both a, a kindness and a difficulty. Because he he saves her from needing to do that, yet at the same time disables her.
1: Right. I mean, I I think there's actually a lot of that in the novel, even as we talked about this moment of revelation to Max. You know, the line uh, regarding the driving, it's on on page 290, I think, and it says, um, Alex occasionally groaned at having to drive her but never pressed her to learn. Was this a kindness or unkindness? Both. And, you know, that, that, that revealing to Max of his parentage is that a kindness or an unkindness, both that there's a sense in which things can operate in both ways, that something can both be an act of generosity and an act of selfishness, and that there's not a contradiction there, um, that it's possible for things that seem contradictory to actually coexist, and I think that Maya is able to reconcile that in a way that maybe Alex never quite gets to. One question that, um, that I had wanted to ask Boris and again didn't get to, and it's a question that I ask a lot, is a question about the ending, which is um, you know, whether, uh, whether he wanted to give the characters a happy ending and whether he, whether he feels like he did. So I'm going to ask that question to you guys instead. What did you make of this ending? So, and I'll say that at the end, at the very end, they are headed home and they uh, get caught in this snowstorm. They're trying to take a shortcut and they get kind of bogged down on this road. And, um, and Maya gets out of the car. Uh, and then she, she asks Alex and Max to get out with her and they do. And it reads, she took Alex's hand, then her sons and stood with them staring at the brutal, mysterious splendor before them. She wanted them to see that it would take some doing to get out of this trouble, but the forecast was good and the world full of wonder, and there was nothing to fear out there at all. What did you that think? That
4: counts as a pretty happy ending. I mean, in the sense, I mean, there's still troubles, but she's not afraid of them. And she's, I mean, I think this kind of weird thing happens where she. Maybe she comes she feels okay with being an interloper. I don't think that's really resolved, but she has transferred that problem to poor little Max, who is now coming to terms with being you know for a for parent kind of person
3: right and i think maybe this goes back to to what Boris said in your talk mm-hmm. with him, Sid about i think he said that one of the things he's really come to appreciate or embrace about sort of American approach to life is this you know it's better to know than not know as difficult as that is Um, so we see that difficult moment here for sure but it does seem to be a kind of release and relief for Maya and I can I can imagine Alex in some way being a foreigner again right because he's tried really hard not to have to put himself in that situation anymore But now if he wants to stay with Maya, which he gets out of the car when she beckons him to do so, it seems like he does and that will continue. But he's going to have to wrap his head around a a sort of exposure and openness that um, he and, and his parents have been trying pretty hard not to have to deal with.
1: One of the things that I think that I am drawn to about road trip novels is this way that they are kind of the literalization of the character's journey that, you know, in any good novel, the characters are taking. And I think that here, um, you know, Maya is on this journey of self-discovery. It's interesting because at the beginning of the novel, Max is very much presented as the other, the interloper. But over the course of the novel, we come to see how much Maya really identifies as that person and how much this is a journey less about coming to know Max and more about coming to know herself and I think that at the end, I don't know how much better she really knows herself or how much progress she and Alex have made in their relationship, but you know that that final line about like there being nothing to fear that seems to me to be the journey that she has made from this feeling that there is everything to fear, and that those fears are what drive her to this sense that she can be the one to take the wheel, to do the driving, and not be constrained by the fears that uh, that may be real or may not be real, but that she is willing to face head-on, that she's willing to, like, step outside of the car and be in the middle of. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. Brad and Schiffer, thank you so much for joining me. Oh,
4: thank you, Sid.
3: It's thank been you. wonderful. It's always a treat.
1: I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Melissa Meager Recommends the middle grade novel Criss Cross by Lynn Ray Perkins.
0: Hi, I'm Melissa Meager, children's librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here today to recommend and review the children's fiction book Criss Cross by Lynn Ray Perkins, recipient of the 2006 Newberry Award. Criss Cross is a coming of age story about a group of friends and what occurs during one summer when they leave their childhood behind. The two main characters are Debbie who wish something would happen in her life and Hector who feels like his story is unfinished. There is also Phil, Lenny, and Patty and the five of them get together every Saturday night to listen to a radio show. Hector begins to take guitar lessons after his sister takes him to a show. He ends up finding a minister who gives lessons for free where he also meets a new group of friends. Debbie convinces her parents to let her get her own room and begins assisting an elderly neighbor with chores around her house. From there, she meets and has a very quick romance with the woman's grandson. Will she ever find love again, she wonders? Another part of the story is when Debbie loses her necklace, which is then found and lost again by several others. Will the necklace eventually make its way back to her? These five friends go through the summer and in turn learn a great deal about themselves as well as one another. Chris Cross is a great book for anyone who is making the transition from childhood to their teenage years. Young teens can relate with the characters in the book and the obstacles they need to overcome. The few illustrations help add a layer of visualization to the story. I would recommend Crisscross for children in grade six through nine. You can find the book at your local New Haven Public Library branch, and as always, you can ask any of the librarians for help.
1: Thanks, Melissa. On our next show. Airing November 2nd, we'll be talking about the novel Brewster, first with the author, Mark Sluka, and then with my fellow readers, Jessica Sager and Sam Purdy. Mark turned me down when I first asked him to be on this show a year ago, but I couldn't stop thinking about this book, which is both beautiful and brutal, so I asked again, and this time he said yes. Make sure you tune in. As ever, if you have thoughts about this episode or any other, you can share them on Facebook or Twitter or email me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. You can listen to old episodes, see what's coming up, or subscribe to us on iTunes on our website, booktalkradio.net. Until next time, happy reading.